Amen. You may be seated. Uh, good morning again. Uh, my name is Levi Pancake. I serve as one of the elders on staff here, and uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, our, we're going to continue our series called Confidence, Letters of John. We're going to be looking at uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. That's 1 John 4, 13 through 21. And while you're uh, turning there or finding that passage, um, one other announcement I want to make you all aware of. Um, in two weeks, that's Sunday, April 11th, so not next Sunday, which is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, but Sunday, April 11th, uh, we'll be moving this service time. Uh, we've been meeting at 9 a.m., and we're going to move it to 10 a.m. Uh, the broader context is uh, a year ago this month, uh, the world went mad, and lockdowns were all over the world due to COVID. And um, if, if you were uh, with Missio at that time, we stopped gathering on Sunday mornings for 12 weeks and then uh, came back together. Uh, in June, and we were at a 25% capacity. And so, um, before COVID, we had a congregation downtown right here and in Casanova. But then in June, we decided because of the capacity restrictions and uh, more importantly, some convictional things, uh, we just decided because we, we couldn't fit everyone in the building like we used to, uh, to start a service in the Valley, meeting at Faith Heritage School, and in Cicero, meeting at the Used Car King. And we've been doing that uh, since June. We had the downtown and Casanova congregations were meeting at 9, and Cicero and the Valley were meeting at 11. Uh, now you fast forward to now, and uh, it appears, uh, well, we know the capacity restrictions are at least at 50% now for um, worship gatherings and all of that. Um, cases hopefully are on uh, the downward dip although there is some concern among experts that still it's plateaued till high. Um, about, I think it was one-third of our county has already been vaccinated. And, uh, but given particularly the capacity restrictions, we believe now um, that we can go to three congregations, so Casanova, downtown, and the Valley, and move all of those at 10 a.m. It's our intention at this time, at least, to continue to social distance, uh, to continue to wear masks if we have been, and, and all of that stuff. Uh, but that means that the Cicero location, which uh, the folks up there have been wonderful, they've served, and we uh, intend and hope to still have a missional community up there. But we believe that those Cicero folks, um, there's space for them um, between downtown and the valley now. And so we wanted to uh, just make you aware in two weeks, that same Sunday that we will be offering preschool, uh, we will, uh, all of our locations, will be meeting at 10 a.m. I mentioned the valley. Um, we're uh, trusting the Lord and hoping and trusting that uh, that congregation uh, will be a church plant, that um, the presence of Christ's people there in partnership and collaboration with uh, other faithful congregations that we can continue to be salt and light in that specific um, area of Syracuse as well. And so, um, we would ask that everyone in this room would uh, just prayerfully consider being a part of that specific work uh, in the valley and uh, participating in missional communities and helping us um, get some of those services, though we've been doing them since June, but uh, gearing them up, helping all of that get off the ground, and more importantly, uh, just to have presence and proclamation in that community. And so we do want to invite everyone uh, to prayerfully consider that. We also ask, um, if you're going to continue downtown, which I know most of you will, which is great, um, but especially for this location, please continue to uh, RSVP. 
Um, even though we're at 50% capacity with a lot of those Cicero folks coming here, um, we may get close to that capacity. So please um, do that. That allows us to know, uh, you know, ushers, how to sit people, how much seating we need, and, uh, and all of that stuff. So that would be um, very, very helpful. Um, okay, so that's the, the big announcement. Uh, Easter Sunday, next Sunday, still 9 o'clock, but two Sundays from now, 10 a.m., um, downtown Casanova and the Valley. All right. Uh, well, now that the PSA is done, let's look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. This is the word of the Lord. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world." There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment We have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for this time together, and we pray now that as we open your word, consider your truth, these promises and exhortations, that you would incline our hearts to this truth. Open our eyes to these things. Please, Lord, give us understanding, and satisfy us with this word, your word, and your promises. Father, we entrust this time to you now, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, D.A. Carson, in his book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, uh, paints this picture and trying to explain um, these three words, God is love. We pick up in the middle of the book, and, and he's, he's saying this. In order to understand God is love, it may help by presenting a picture. Picture Charles and Susan walking down a beach hand in hand at the end of the academic year. The pressure of the semester has dissipated in the warm evening breeze. They've kicked off their sandals, and the wet sand squishes between their toes. Charles turns to Susan, gazes deeply into her large hazel eyes, and says, Susan, I love you. I really do. What does he mean? 
Well, in this day and age, he may mean nothing more than that he feels like testosterone on legs. But if we assume he even has a modicum of decency, let alone Christian virtue, the least he means is something like this. Susan, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your smile polyxes me from 50 yards. Your sparkling good humor, your beautiful eyes, the scent of your hair, everything about you transfixes me. I love you. Now, what he most certainly does not mean is something like this. Susan, quite frankly, you have such a bad case of halitosis, it would embarrass a herd of unwashed garlic-eating elephants. Your nose is so bulbous, you belong in the cartoons. Your hair is so greasy, it could lubricate an 18-wheeler. Your knees are so disjointed, you make a camel look elegant. Your personality makes Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan look like wimps. But I love you. So now God comes to us and says, I love you. What does God mean? Now, our passage this morning uh, gets at what God means when he says, I love you. And we're going to come back to the story of Charles and Susan and uh, what Don Carson wrote about that at the end. But we look at our passage today and we see that John, in many ways, answers the question of what does God mean when he says, I love you, with these three words. God is love. Now, we were introduced to those three words last week when Justin was preaching on the earlier part of 1 John 4, where in 1 John 4, 8, John writes, anyone who does not know God, excuse me, anyone who does not love, there it is, that's more, that's really important, does not love, does not know God, because, here are the three words, God is love. And the key to understanding our passage This morning are those three words, God is love. And John is breaking down the implications of this wonderful truth in the life of the Christian. And we see in this passage that Christians then can and are to live in light of this, those wonderful three words, God is love. Because God's nature is love, all of his activity toward us is an expression of that love. God is love. And so we're going to see that that love then, it um, produces within us uh, the opportunity in Christ to have intimacy with God, a relationship with God. Secondly, it gives us confidence in the day of judgment. And then thirdly, it transforms us to actually love others. Because God is love, we're going to see it, it um, produces within us intimacy with God, or it produces faith to have a relationship with God in Christ. It, it produces confidence in the day of judgment. It, it produces hope for that day. And then lastly, it produces love. It produces faith, hope, and love. So let's consider that, that first point. God's love produces and guarantees in Christ that we can have an intimate relationship with God. In verses 13 through 16 of our passage, you see the word abide five times. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Uh, Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. Verse 16, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. That word abide, it's not 
used that often in the English vernacular. It it means to remain or to stay or to continue. And in the English language, it's it's related to another word, abode, where it means to to take up a a permanent dwelling or to make your address permanent. In many ways, uh, when he's saying to abide, it means that you make your home in God and God makes His home in you. It's to be at home with God. It's for God to be at home with you. And as Christians, when John keeps on saying, abide, 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 this, this continuous mutual abiding, God abides in us, we abide in God, we abide in the love, God's love abides in us and we in God, all of that stuff, I mean, it, it's at, as if we're making our home with God. I mean, that's the status of the Christian. I, I've been to England a few times, and uh, on one of my trips, I was sitting down with a, a missionary, an acquaintance, and... Uh, he was English, and he said that um, us Americans, he believes the reason that we love going to England and we're obsessed with uh, English royalty and the crown and all of that, we love going over there because we Americans, we feel like we're going home when we go visit that. And I think that's just a little bit of a snarky way talking about the American Revolution and, you know, covering up the fact that they lost it. I don't know. But I just thought of that when I was considering just us making our home with God, but it's a relational thing. It's, that's what he's saying. I mean, in Christ, we're, in our reconciliation to God, we're made home now in God that we can have an intimate, vibrant, healthy, growing loving relationship with our Creator and our Rescuer. I mean, the one who knows the very worst about us still loves us. We can have a relationship with someone who knows us more deeply than we know ourselves, or as one pastor put it, the one who accepts us just as we are in order to make us just what He intended us to be. It's with that person that we can have an intimate relationship with. And God doesn't come and go, but abides. His love does not run hot and cold like the passions of teenage love. His love isn't fickle. It doesn't change with the winds. It's not up and down like the love of a toddler who's cuddling you one minute and then throwing a tantrum in the candy owl the next. His love um, doesn't go back and forth. It doesn't pivot like politicians' love for their constituents or um, their love for their districts or uh, they don't, he doesn't change positions on matters. He doesn't um, turn on colleagues, but His love is steady. His love is stable. His love abides. He doesn't love us more when we give Him what He wants, and He doesn't turn on us or withhold that love when He's upset with us. But God goes on loving because He is love. And that love then elicits, it, it provides, and in Christ guarantees that we can have a relationship with Him through that love. It's an overflow of God's character just spills out on to us. And, and we see how this love is displayed in a few ways in this passage. Verse 13, we see that God is love, how that plays out in the giving of His Spirit. Verse 13, by this we know. How do we know? By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us 
of His Spirit. To be a follower of Christ is to have the Spirit of God. To be regenerate or have that change of heart is to have the Spirit of God. To have the Spirit is to be in Christ. As John Stott says, it is only by the grace of the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth and whose first fruit is love, that we ever come to know and to believe in Christ and to then be transformed to love others. So the reason that the gospel is sweet to you, the reason that Christ is a treasure to you, is because of God's gift of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who opens our eyes to these wonderful truths. It's the Spirit who then enables us to trust in Christ. It's the Spirit then that transforms us to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, to live out in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So the flow of thought is this, that we know that we live in God and God in us because, John says, because He's given us His Spirit. And we know that He's given us His Spirit because we have come to know and believe in His Son, Jesus. And in addition to His Spirit, uh, we see, yes, he, 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 the Spirit has caused us to believe in Jesus, but of course, God actually sent Jesus as a demonstration of the love as well. Verse 14, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If you go back to the beginning of this letter, I mean, John says that we, we've seen Jesus, we've, we've interacted with Jesus, we've, we've touched Jesus. He was physical, fully and completely God, fully and completely man, fully and completely united in one person. In verse 14, he says, we've seen Him, and we testify to Him that He is the Son of God and Savior of the world. I mean, Jesus isn't just some moral teacher, though He is that, But He's more than that. He's Son of God, Savior of the world. Jesus is a revolutionary, but He's not just a revolutionary. I mean, He is Son of God, Savior of the world. Jesus is clearly a great moral example, but He's more than that. He's Son of God, Savior of the world. And as an overflow of God's love, He sent that Savior, and then He sent the Spirit to us that we might trust in that Savior as our substitute in order to reconcile us back to our Creator and our God. That's verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So the key then, uh, the, the, the seal and initiation of that abiding is confessing that Jesus is Son and Savior. It's acknowledging, it's agreeing with God, the Father, as to who He says Jesus is. And our belief in Jesus, our coming to know Jesus in this intimate, personal way as Son of God and Savior, that's a work of the Spirit in our lives. Who inspires us to profess that? Spirit of God. Who enables us and empowers us to then live lives overflowing in the fruit of love? Spirit of God. So then in verse 16, it says, so we have come to know and to believe 
the love that God has for us, coming to know and believing that Jesus is Son of God, Savior of the world, when we come to know and believe that, then we come to know and understand experientially, relationally, relationally, factually, objectively, the love of God. Then he continues in verse 16, God is love. And whoever abides in love, that is this love expressed through his Son, enabled by the Holy Spirit, this person abides in God. That's how someone is at home in God, and God abides in him. Continuous, mutual, indwelling, through Jesus Christ, by means of the Holy Spirit. We have come to know and believe because of God's wonderful, life-changing work through His Son and His Spirit. God's love demonstrated through the Son and the Spirit and allows us, provides for us, guarantees that we in Christ can have an intimate, vibrant, growing relationship with our Creator, with our Redeemer, with our Rescuer, with God. Not only then does His love produce this intimate relationship with Him in, in Christ, but it also um, it produces hope when thinking about the day of judgment. Look at verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in the world. Now, in verse 17 and at the end of verse 18, you see this phrase, and Josh um, reminded us of this wonderful promise when we uh, finished corporately confessing our sin to the Lord. This phrase, uh, love perfected with us, beginning of 17, and then he says at the end of 18. This idea of His love being perfected with us is this idea that um, His love is transforming us. Think maturing or growing in Christ. Think conforming and maturing to the image of His Son. That when we abide in God, when we're in relationship with God through His Son by means of the Holy Spirit, that we then continue to mature, we continue to grow up in Christ, we, this side of eternity, begin to look more and more like Christ. That's how love is being matured in us or being perfected with us. And the more and more that we cling to Christ and that we abide in relationship with God, the more and more we conform to that image. And the more and more we conform to that image, the more and more we have confidence that we are truly in Christ. I mean, it's all kind of interrelated and wrapped together like a Schneider's pretzel. I mean, it's all just kind of entwined one in another. And then as it pertains to judgment, he then fast forward and he pictures this day of judgment. He says, for those of us who are in Christ, who are abiding in this love, on the day of judgment, we can have confidence. We can have hope. And the rationale being is that um, we who already know our judge, we already know him. Because we know Him as Savior and Rescuer. 
This same judge is the same one who has already forgiven us through Jesus' death on the cross. And if you know the one who is going to judge you on the day of judgment is already the one who has loved you with an everlasting love and rescued you from your sins by dying on the cross, we don't have to fear judgment on that day because we already relationally know this judge as love. That's why he says in verse 18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love, is not, is not maturing in love, is not growing in love, is not understanding the implications of this relationship with God through Jesus Christ by means of the Holy Spirit. So if we know this judge as Savior and Rescuer, then we don't have to fear on the day of judgment. There's no room for fear. Now, this is a different fear than what you see in like Proverbs, like fear is the beginning of wisdom. This fear has to do with judgment day punishment. That fear in Proverbs has to do with with reverence for God and, and humble submission to the Lord. So John is saying that if we know this love of God, that that love, it, it banishes fear, it expels fear, it, it exercises fear, it, it casts it out. And that that confidence on the day of judgment and fear are incompatible. They can't go together. We can love and revere God, but we can't love God and know the love and fear His judgment at the same time. They're mutually exclusive. They don't go together. They're incompatible. They're as incompatible as liking the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Baltimore Ravens. They don't go together. It's like having breath and not liking a Chick-fil-A sandwich. Like, they just don't go together. Incompatible. Just doesn't happen. Because, John says, fear has to do with punishment. And punishment is foreign to God's forgiven children who love Him. Because we are forgiven, we no longer fear that punishment. Jesus says in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you are in Christ, or another way to say that, if you know the love of God through Christ, then you don't need to fear judgment in the future. For God has already judged your sins on the cross. Christ took our judgment and the wrath in our place that we might be reconciled to God. May we rejoice in that wonderful, wonderful promise. May we rejoice in the extravagant love of God. And that leads to the last point, that that God is love, and this love, it it guarantees or it produces a, a transformation to love others. It's going to transform us in such a way that we love others. It's a cause and effect. It It happens. Because a good tree produces good fruit 
If we know that love, abide in that love, we will then love others. 1 John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. Now remember, this is right on the heels of this, this fear of judgment, uh, verses 17 and 18. Instead of being afraid of God, we love like God. Our great characteristic as Christians is not fear of God, but our trademark is rather love. And God's love was first, and our love is simply a response to God's initiative. God's love, God's activity in our lives transforms us then to love like He loves. It's a profound thought. And then in our last two verses, he says this, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, we know this from earlier passages that when it says this, this word hate, it, it means a settled disposition. It, it's living in unconfessed, unrepentant sin. It is um, a settled disposition to your brother or sister. Now, in particular, he's talking about relationships with other professing followers of Christ, but certainly it also applies to um, others, our neighbors, others made in the image of God. He says, if you say, I love God, if you profess that, but then through your actions and through your attitudes, remain in the settled disposition of hate. If you treat your brothers and sisters and or your neighbor with hatred, John doesn't hold any punches. He says, liar. You don't love God. And the, and the logic as he continues in verse 20 is he says, you claim to love God whom you can't see. But then you continue to hate your brother and sister who's made in God's image, bears his mark, who you see. You look them in the eyes. You interact with them. You worship next to them. You're in small group with them. You says that's the person that you hate. And if love is not the trademark of your life, but rather hate is, then your profession is just hypocrisy. And you may not really know and understand the love of God. Because if you did, the logic goes, you would then be transformed to love others. Now, of course, we're not going to love perfectly. We're going to have shortcomings. We're going to mess up. We're going to need to seek forgiveness from others. That's why it's important to understand the settled disposition. But there are some. I mean, within, I'll just say the church in large, I mean, you see in Hebrews these warnings against bitterness, for by it many become defiled. You see these warnings of gossip. You see these warnings of backbiting. You see these warnings of placing, you know, the things that are important to you, your preferences, your consciences, over and above the unity that comes from being a follower of Christ. And all those, if we're not careful and don't quickly confess and repent of those things, can quickly snowball into hate and a hardness of heart that robs us of joy, robs us of the vibrant growing relationship with God and, of course, with others. Almost two weeks ago, there was just a horrific tragedy 
the shootings in Atlanta. And though there have been many stories about it, and we grieve with those who, um, of course, the families of, of those loved ones, and grieve that this tragedy happened, but uh, there are many narratives in the national media where uh, the killer, the murderer, uh, he claimed to be a follower of Christ. And I don't know how recent that was. There's some conflicting report, reports, but he was a member of a church. And some in the national media went on to just say, you know, this is what happens um, when those bigoted Christians, you know, they, they preach their, their Bible. This is the result of that, that murder. And yet we read a passage like this, and John and the Scriptures are plain as day. I mean, one of the most if not the most, it's got to be, extreme version of hate is murder. And John says that if, if you know the love of God, you'll love others. You won't hate others, and you most certainly will not murder others. We, as followers of Christ, the trademark, the defining characteristic within the church and demonstrating to those outside the church, is love for others. Why? Because we have experienced the extravagant, wonderful love of God through Jesus Christ and the gift of His Holy Spirit, moving us, drawing us, morphing us to treasure and love Christ. God is love, and His love, then it, it guarantees or it provokes, it, it provides this faith for a relationship with them. It, it becomes the, the basis for our, our confident hope, and of course, then it transforms us to, to love others. I want to end with going back to Don Carson's um, quick story about uh, Charles and Susan and how that plays out with uh, the love of God. It says, God comes to us and He says, I love you. What does God mean when He says to us, I love you? Does He mean something like this? You mean everything to me. This is God speaking to us. You mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your personality, your witty conversation, your beauty, your smile, everything about you transfixes me. Heaven would be boring without you. I love you, end quote. Now, that, after all, is pretty close to what some therapeutic approaches to the love of God spell out. We must be pretty wonderful because God loves us, and dear old God is pretty vulnerable, finding himself in a dreadful state unless we say yes. When he says he loves us, does God not rather mean something like the following? Morally speaking, morally speaking, emphasis there, morally speaking, you are the people of the halitosis, the bulbous nose, the greasy hair, the disjointed knees, the abominable personality. Your sins have made you disgustingly ugly, but I love you anyway, not because you are attractive, but because it is my nature to love. And in the case of the elect, God adds, I've set my affections on you from before the foundation of the universe, not because you're wiser or better or stronger than others, but because in grace I chose to love you. You are mine, and you will be transformed. Nothing in all creation can separate you from my love mediated through Jesus Christ, Romans 8. So at the end of the day, God loves whomever the object because God is love. There are thus two critical points. First, God exercises this love in conjunction with all of His other perfections. But His love is no less love for all of that. And second, His love emanates. It emanates from His own character. 
And it is not dependent on the loveliness of the loved, external to himself. John's point in 1 John 4, God is love, is that those who really do know God come to love that way too. Doubtless, we do not do it very well, but aren't Christians supposed to love the unlovable, even our enemies? God has loved us, and He's shown that love by sending His Son, by giving His Spirit, by transforming us to love others. And so may we, this, this church, be marked by us making our home in God, abiding in God, and God abiding in us. May we be a people marked by these things, for God is love. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are love. We pray that You will continue to perfect us, that You would continue to mature us. We pray that we would love others as You have loved us. We thank You for this love. We thank You that no one can separate us from that love. We thank You that You've set Your affections upon us in Jesus Christ. We love You, Lord. We praise Your name for these wonderful promises and truths. In Jesus' name, amen.